The content in this podcast is meant for mature audiences only, 18 and up, as some of it may be difficult to hear. Continuing to listen to this content releases Rest, Virginia Dixon, from all liability. Welcome, everyone, to the REST podcast, where our goal is to help each and every one of you displace confusion, chaos, and dis-ease in order to heal and find significance in life. I am your host, Natalie Williams, and I am here with the author of The Reconstitution Method for Healing and REST, Virginia Dixon. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Virginia. I'm glad to be here. As am I. So by divine appointment, I think we have, yes, we have Chris Blue here, who is a publisher, a mom of five, been married for 26 years and in ministry for 26 years, born and raised in Nashville, one of my favorite places on earth, just to share your story and just talk about what it means to be a woman. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. We're excited you're here too. What it is to be a woman, right? But a daughter, a sister, a wife, Mm -hmm. a mother of five, married 26 years. So fun. Yes. John and I uh, married to John Blue and uh, we joke all the time that we were just a young couple playing pro hockey and dancing for the Lakers and fell in love and thought, how fun to have a baby or two. And here we are 26 years later with five crazy kids and it's been a ride. Five colorful kids. Five colorful kids, yes. Let's go with that. (laughs) Do you know, one of the things that I enjoy, perhaps enjoy most reflecting on, is what it is to be a woman. What does it look like to be a healthy wife? Mm. A good mom? What does it look like to be a good friend? What does it look like to learn how to love ourselves? in the midst of the complexity of all those relationships. What does it look like to date today? What does it look like to be single after 30, 40 years of marriage, perhaps? Mm -hmm. The world has become so complex, I think because everything comes at us so quickly. From the conversations we've had, Chris, aspects of your story can touch almost every single one of our listening audience. So tell us what it's been like to grow into womanhood. Okay. I love that. I am 53. My first sexual encounter when I was five, my parents were divorced by the time I was seven. My mom raised me as a single mom working two jobs. My brother and I, we saw what it was to work hard My dad was in the picture, but not around constantly, but we saw what a work ethic was. We saw what it looked like to provide for your family, and that laid a beautiful foundation. I was gifted with dance. My mom, as a single mom, worked fairly hard to make sure that we could do dance. My brother played tennis, all of those things, but it really built a foundation that kind of made me who I would become. I became a dancer. I danced all through high school, went to school on a college scholarship, for dance, I moved to LA and became a Laker girl for three years, was able to be in several films. Forrest Gump was a lot of fun to do. And so just really able to have an opportunity, very blessed for that. 
But having, you know, being in that field and being around Hollywood and, you know, all the comparison and the insecurity and the identity and all of that stuff that rears its head. I mean, I was the same person who, you know, there's always somebody prettier, smarter, more talented, more fit for a role. You're constantly being told no. And when you don't know who you are and who you've been made to be, that strips away your identity and the beauty of your soul. And right. How did that manifest in your life? Because that's not, that's not an easy pilgrimage you just described. Yeah. No, for me, it was, I would say, sexually. I ironically really only had two boyfriends before my husband, but incredibly sexually active with them every day of my life for years, you know, just a constant search for that vacuum that we talk about, you know, that, that vacuum within us that we're constantly trying to fill and find joy and peace and fulfillment. And I would say I did that through relationships. Wow. When did you begin to realize there's got to be a better way? I met a young woman, Lakita Garth at the time was her name. She was dating AC Green, who played for the Lakers. She invited me to a conference in Phoenix, Arizona. And the first night there was a gentleman there by the name of Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole. And he talked and said all these great things. But the thing that stood out the most to me was the phrase, the higher the gloss, the cheaper the merchandise. It's true with furniture. It's true with women. And when I first heard it, I thought, wait a minute, should I be offended? Like, wait, what? Did you compare me <laughs> to furniture? talking to yeah, me? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> talking to me? But, as, but literally, as I sat there with my fake blue contacts and my highlighted hair and my fake tan and everything that I had done to the outside of me to earn approval and, and to gain peace and all of those things, that's what I felt like. I felt cheap. And I felt like I just was made up of a bunch of gloss. And I wanted something more than that. So he got to the heart of that quiet, still voice that probably tried to get your attention a few times prior to that point. Yes, absolutely. Actually, it's interesting. I had grown up in a small Methodist church, and I remember the day that I got baptized and dipped and got my hair wet and everything, and uh, walking through our little local craft fair and all these people saying, congratulations, congratulations. And I had absolutely no idea why I was being congratulated, because I really didn't fully grasp what it was I had done. Someone had given me a Bible and I kept it in the box because I thought it was too brand new to actually open up and read what you it didn't said. want to ruin it. I didn't want to ruin <laughs> it. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to mess this thing up. So, so from those early developmental years to that one incident, fast forward, right? With his colleague, was she a cheerleader with you or the girlfriend? She, of well, we did another team together called the All-American Girls. Mm-hmm. We have a meme that's out right now. That's pretty fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, we did All-American Girls and she really mentored me for years, really laid a foundation of what it looked like to be a woman of character and integrity and truth. I was never really a big liar, but it's not like I wouldn't deceive to get my way before, you Mm -hmm. know? And so she really came alongside me and showed me lots of little things, showed me how to do my makeup, showed me how to pay rent, showed me how to do things that I just didn't always do well. Did it change your personal life 
beyond those practical things in terms of how you dated, how you looked at men, absolutely. how you dressed. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have a funny story. I lived in a staff house is what we called it. It was a four-story mm-hmm. Victorian over by USC because I was finishing up school at USC. And there was a, a man who ran our house, big, huge, amazing black man, Fred Bradford. And every morning he would come upstairs. He would he would stomp up the stairs and go, Crescita! Crescita, time to get out. Let's go to let's go to school. Let's go to class. But I used to wear these really, really short dresses. And so one day he came in my room and he was like, you can't wear that. You can't wear that. He was like going through my closet. You can't wear that. You can't wear that. And I was like, what? And he had this really petite wife who lived in the house with us, Lisa. And I would go, your wife wears shorter dresses than I do. And he said, yes, but my wife doesn't have the spirit of seduction on her that you do. Ooh, and wow. so it was the Whoa. first, it was the first time in my life that I I began to understand that there was something under the surface that was operating in my decision making. And I had also been engaged to my college boyfriend and he had cheated on me and it had not gone well. And so I, I wanted to do things differently. I wanted to trust the Lord, frankly, to pick my spouse. And so I, I did remain abstinent. I just had a, I just went to a sex talk with my 13 year old last week, and I was happy to see that the CDC is now recommending abstinence um, education. <laughs> wow, that's good I to was hear. For yeah, five that's years. new. I know it was new. I was like, what is happening here? But we were laughing. We're, they, they now say that one partner having sex with one partner over an extended period of time is best. You're like, oh, that sounds like a monogamous. That's refreshing. Yeah, that is refreshing. <laughs> I know. So anyway, side note. So I was absent for five years and then met John Blue. So that's fun. wonderful. Yeah. So the transformation was gradual and steady, I should say. It was gradual. It was steady. It was significant, not without its rebellion and not without lots of accountability I bucked the system a lot. <laughs> it's been a long time being rebellious, and so I bucked, I bucked growth and making changes. What caused you to resist? What are the things that caused the hiccups in your life? I think control. Control is a huge thing for me. Mm-hmm. Always had been, and that, I think, stemmed from, right, parents splitting up really early and having to leave all my friends and the neighborhood that I loved. My mom, my dad literally went to work on a Tuesday morning. And as soon as he left, my mom called the moving truck, packed our whole world up. And by the time he came home from work, we had moved to a town two and a half hours away. There were, I left my horse at that place. You know, there were lots of things that I couldn't control. So you decided that wasn't going to happen again. Yeah. I just decided that as long as I'm in control and I'm making decisions, then anything that fails or anything that hurts, it will be because of me, not because I let someone else do that to me. What's interesting is the flip side of that is we talk about attachment quite a bit around here. Mm -hmm. And when there's that level of chaos in a home, Mm -hmm. right? The controller, the flip side of that controller is also a compliance, uh, a victim Mm. mentality, Mm -hmm. a propensity to comply without too many questions. So you flip from one to another. In what ways did that pattern manifest where you know you were often you consented to things that you otherwise would have rather not. Mm. Did you feel like sometimes you went along with things as well when your conscience dictated otherwise? I, d- I think in the, in terms of, I don't know, I sometimes phrase it as man pleasing, right? Yeah. Where you're, 
I can't think of anything specific now, but kind of in terms of where you're in a situation or a group situation and you want to just, you don't want to rock the boat. The boat. Exactly. That's you don't exactly rock what I, the boat. I see that. I, I, I feel like sometime back, I kind of like identified this whole idea, which I'd love for you to speak to this like whole idea of how control is like rooted in fear and how it's like, whatever mm-hmm. this fear is that you have, if it's fear that your marriage is going to fall apart, fear that you're not going to have finances, fear that your children are going to mess up, whatever that fear is, you do everything within your power so that that fear doesn't happen. And so you begin to control and then you control by manipulating everybody around you, manipulating all the situations so that all the balls you're juggling don't hit the ground. Right. And then you manipulate so long that it actually becomes a stronghold for you. And so the irony of this great cycle is that the very fear that you didn't want to happen you're now in bondage to this fear and it just like perpetuates and it spins out of control and it's all based on trying to control it it's that's it's right. crazy making it's like Which operating is, out of fear yeah basically yeah, exactly. at that point yeah, yeah. yeah you're and exactly it's, right so and it's good. no control at all no it's no. out of control and it continues the chaos continues chaos continues yeah. I often say, and to some extent, that beat goes on and on. So take us to being a wife now. Well, a lot of fun. We were a lot of fun. You know, I I had, there were very distinct wounds that I had, I think, from previous relationships, different comments that were said to me or made to me or different holes in my soul that John Blue just beautifully ministered to little silly little things. Like I had a boyfriend who once would say that my nose in his terminology was so Caucasian, your nose is so Caucasian. And I would go, what does that mean? And he'd go, I don't know. It's just kind of pointy. And it's just, you know, I just don't love your nose. That's what he would say to me. And John and I were riding in the car one day early on and he looked over and out of nowhere said, you have the most beautiful nose I've ever seen. And I just broke and started crying. And he was like, Whoa, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you you had a great nose, but I was like, no, you have no idea what that does for my heart that's been broken in that area. And there was just so many conversations like that, where it just was confirmed that that we were supposed to be together. And it was just really lovely and has continued, thankfully. It's amazing the simple things we can do to help each other heal. Yes. and But the fact you were willing to be vulnerable in that moment, too, was really significant in your healing. Because you could have held the tears in. You could have not wanted to be embarrassed in that same way. And it would have been a different story, yeah, but instead it was an he- opportunity to heal. Yeah, that's exciting. That's wonderful. We dated six weeks, I think six weeks before we were engaged and married nine months later. We, on our first year anniversary, found that we were pregnant with McKenna, who's now 24. And uh, I rolled over. I was so excited. I was like, happy anniversary. I'm pregnant. And he <laughs> shot up and said, we don't have insurance. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> we should have thought about that before. So anyway, but, you know, very easy. She was an easy baby. And so we, and we lived in Texas at the time. We were helping with an organization out there in Austin for nine years. And everybody, it seemed like the average family size was like four or five. And, uh, and all of our friends had large families. And so we just kept having babies and it, it, it flowed pretty smoothly. I had great pregnancies, great deliveries, great babies. And then they turned into teenagers. And that's when my, oh, no. that's when and my chaos started. Yeah. Yes. And that's when the little seedlings of a lot of history began to take root, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. So take us through that. 
Well, we moved here from Austin in 06, and the children were seven, five, three, one, and then I had Georgia four years later. I lost a baby between Hudson and Georgia, so I had Georgia four years later. And we had started a church. That's why we moved out here. We're serial church planters. And so we had started a church in Orange County and it was great. And we started literally, I think we had 16 people, most of our family and my in-laws and I think the realtor that, you know, sold us our house and all of that. That's kind of how we started. And it was lovely. Bought a home and really saw some, really experienced some amazing, sweet things with our, our crew during that time. But I would say around 2012, sadly, we had bought at the height of the market. And so around 2012, things began to crumble a little bit. God called us out of the church that we were a part of, which was really painful. It was a very painful process to walk through. Felt a lot of betrayal in that, which is a whole different story. We lost our home, which was humiliating and painful. And one of the toughest things that I think John and I have walked through in our marriage because he's a very strong man and he's humble when he needs to be. But I think he felt the weight of the responsibility of having lost our home. And I think the way it went down was heart crushing. And it was really an opportunity for me to learn how to have an honest conversation with my husband without tearing him down. Because I think it's really easy for a woman to either build up her home or tear it down with her own hands and her own words And I think I have probably had a few nights where I beat him over the head with it. Just how could you do this to us? How could you put us in this position? When did you make the wrong turn? How did we end up here? Just a lot of berating and a lot of not really forgiving and not really making and fear. Yeah. A lot of fear. A lot of fear. What shifted? What was the shift? Well, I think it, it, I'm still mad. No, <laughs> I think it's still, still but there's, it's yeah. still shocking. Probably there's still a lot there. I tell you what it was really is the next thing happened. It was like mm-hmm. we walked away from the church and we lost the house. We had a business at the time. I was Chip and jo- Joanna without the money. I didn't. <laughs> he believed in my dreams like Chip, but I didn't have Joanna's money. We did a little home store at the time that was amazing, but we closed that because we had a cancer scare and we, you know, were going through so much transition. Um, breast so. cancer. For you? Uh, yes, for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which thankfully turned out to be okay. So. Unrest in the nest. Yeah. Breast cancer is unrest in the nest. Unrest and what you're nest. describing. So mm-hmm. That's that's exactly, yeah, that makes sense. How soon after losing the house, leaving the church, how soon was that diagnosis? Right after. Like literally mm-hmm. seven years of just, you know, the church and then the house and then the business and the mm-hmm. cancer. And then McKenna got pregnant. So the summer mm-hmm. before her senior year. McKenna got pregnant, and right after that, Jackson walked through his struggles with suicide and depression. And, and uh, So here you are, the wife of a pastor. You have all of this catastrophe, it yeah. seems like, mounting. And so you're dealing with the embarrassment, the loss, yeah. the pregnancy, and now addictions. And yes. How did you navigate through all that? It was really, I think, looking back now... It's incredibly ironic how you look back because we were in a church of maybe four or 500 people at the time. And when we left there, we started a small work of about 30, 40 people. And I think in the eyes of some, they would deem that as, oh, that's 
failure. You've, you've lost, but it was a sweet spot for us to land in that we very publicly within that group of people got to grieve our season. There was not a lot of expectation on me to be perfect or to be present or to be any of those things. So I had sweet graciousness from the people that we build life with. I love this part of your story because that's what we're all about with rest is reconciling the conflicts within yourself and the implications that those have. In this case, it would be a marriage, Mm. a family, a church, a community. And the influence you have beyond even the communities I just mentioned, but being transparent and authentic and sincere in our brokenness becomes instrumental in healing. I'll never forget the night that McKenna came home and told us that she was pregnant. You probably heard me from wherever you were screaming F-bombs from my front yard because (laughs) pretty much what I did. I had also had an abortion in college and so... I was really mad because mm. I remember when I gave my heart to Jesus, I said, okay, now you, you're, this is a new thing, right? I'm doing a generational new thing here. And so I don't want my kids to go through the same thing that I did. I don't want my kids to make the same decisions that I made. And instantly I had this sense that it was already better because McKenna was going to keep this baby. She was adamant That's about right. keeping the baby. And, you know, we went through different things about, you know, if we were going to adopt or what, what that process was going to look like, but where we didn't handle it well, where we overreacted, she immediately called the girl who was our children's pastor. She immediately called her friend's mom. She immediately called my best friend of 30 plus years. There were a group of women around her, which I think is so important, right? One of the things we say now, because we are huge overreactors in our house. And so one of the things that we say now is we try to wisely respond instead of wildly overreact because (laughs) we were huge. Like every small thing was a huge overreaction. It was so important to know that you'd had a history of friendship with people who were going to be there in those moments. And then that thing that we thought was so tragic. And so like, I remember saying to her, you've ruined your life. Look what you've done. And the next morning was my favorite part of this story. The next morning she crawled into my bed, almost kind of childlike and curled up next to me. And she said, you are such a hypocrite. This is my daughter. She was probably 17, 18 at the time. She said, you are such a hypocrite. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, all day long, we tell people how beautiful their stories are. We tell people that no matter how much they've messed up, that there's hope for them on the other side to make different choices. And you don't think there's a plan for this baby's life? And it wrecked us. It, wow. I mean, it just mm-hmm. completely. And so this thing that we thought was so tragic for our family ended up being this, you know, little feet full of joy just running through our hallways that we all clamored over who got to squeeze him. You know, that was such that joy. and the words of your daughter. Oh, yeah. so powerful. Because that's exactly, I often talk about the hypocrisy that has paralyzed and has made the church relatively almost inconsequential. Yes. And our kids don't want to be a part of what we came out of because no. they saw the hypocrisy. That's mm-hmm. right. And, and it goes back to what you were talking about, about where the man pleasing or where you kind of cave in mm-hmm. to certain things, because 
why did I respond the way that I did? Because I was worried what people would think. think. Exactly. I would worry about how they would judge my parenting or they would worry about what they would think about my daughter, you know. And thankfully, she has her dad's confidence because she literally would get out of the car every morning. She didn't drive. She still didn't drive. And so I would go, you don't even have a driver's license, but you're about to be a mom. This is crazy, you know. <laughs> and she would get out of the car with this huge belly and T-shirts, tight T-shirts over this huge belly going to take a test. And I would watch her get out and I would watch her peers like whisper and giggle and point. And she just had to put that head up, you know, and, and it was the best thing that ever happened for her. She really struggled with depression and she struggled with suicide ideology, all of that for years. But the second she found out she was pregnant and that there was something else for her to live for, she knew she wanted to be a nurse. She's about to graduate nursing school. She just got engaged to a great guy. She works at a mental health collective. You know, mm-hmm. she's just fantastic and knows exactly what she wants to do now. So it was good, good move for her. Brokenness that steps into these places of reconciling conflict and having the courage mm. to look at mom and dad that are in the ministry and say, you're a hypocrite. Those are loving words, painful, but loving words. And I think that is the hope of a generation is that we have millions of people like mm. her rising up and saying, because you didn't reflect integrity and you didn't reflect congruency and what you were saying and how you were living and because you did not give me a full picture of what it meant to be full and whole Mm -hmm. and healed and to follow the teachings of this historic person that was Christ that doesn't mean all those things aren't true Mm -hmm. because you didn't reflect those things it's a matter of fact I'm going to choose life and I'm going to do the right thing and that must have been satisfying It was so good because our family's motto has always been love hard and fight hard. And so we fight hard, but I love that she loved us enough to have the hard conversations. I want that to be a source of encouragement for our listening audience because hard conversations are painful. They're always riddled with tears and some brutal words. But if we can hold on to the fact that when we confess our conflicts, our sins, right? the ways we violate ourselves one to another, that we will be healed. I recently heard of a very well-known, well-respected man who is an amazing man of God. And I can, like right now, even as I speak, three come to mind. But he died of alcoholism and nobody knew. Not a single soul knew that this was a problem. Another one, addicted to pornography and acted out on that addiction. Global figure. Again, not a single person supposedly knew about this. And I thought these secrets are the cancer of the soul. And so by way of encouragement, I love your story because if we can be courageous and knowing that being a woman in this day and age is not for the faint of heart, not that it ever was, but it certainly isn't now. It's just not easy. Yeah. But if you can find strength in the pursuit of rest, reconciling relational, emotional, spiritual truth, knowing that there's something compelling about light and life and liberty and love, right, and all these things that are good, that can get us far. And knowing that there's a good God that designed life and everything in it, 
for us to thrive and impact each other's lives in significant ways. All of a sudden, life begins to make sense again, especially when it's your children. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting what you talk about kind of what the trauma or, or the crisis induces is this coping mechanism, this idea yes. of, because I found that to be true myself. I mean, I went through years of not drinking at all, just almost religious about it, you know, legalistic about it. Like, I don't drink, I don't need that, da, da, da. But when everything started to happen and the chaos began to un- unfold in our home, I, I liken it to when you're at the mall and you see a schematic of the mall and you see the X that says you're here and then it begins to show you the different routes that you can take to shop or the different escape routes, you know, that for the fire exit, that's kind of like what it was. It was like, okay, well, my escape today is going to be binge shopping. My escape today is going to be eating. My escape today is going to be waiting till everybody goes to bed and then I'm going to open the bottle of wine or this, you know, it's all these different things. And, but if you don't have someone that you trust. And if you are again enslaved to that fear and you don't open up about what your coping mechanisms have become, because what are you doing? You're doing the same thing that your kids are trying to do. Your kids are in this world where they literally just either they feel everything and they want to numb out. Mm -hmm. So they make the choices they do, or they're so numb and they want to feel something. So they make the choices that they do. And I think a lot of moms, a lot of dads make those same choices of I've got so much I'm juggling and so much I'm carrying. I just want to check out for a little bit, mm-hmm. but then you don't realize that that becomes a, a pattern that becomes a habit. And then you don't tell anybody th- about it because you think I don't want anybody to know that I have an issue with the, you know, and it just becomes this gnarly downward. It spiral. slowly erodes your life. Mm-hmm. It slowly erodes the life of your soul. And then you have a secret life. Yeah. And before you know it, you're comfortable in both worlds and there's a better way. There's a better way. That's right. And the net, what you're, what I always say that the coping mechanism that got you through one season will sometimes keep you from getting to where you're supposed to go in the next thing. Love it. Explain that. Well, it's like you get a little, you know, right now we're in a, a moment of reprieve is what I call them. You know, when you're in this crisis cycle craziness and then all of a sudden there's like a breathing you know it's not quite as elevated as it was so in this moment of reprieve it's like okay I can look back and I don't necessarily need these coping mechanisms that have worked for me here but I can see that I'm supposed to encourage people with this story I can see I'm supposed to write about this story I can see that something on the other side of it but if I continue the same coping mechanisms I used here it won't necessarily allow me to be a hundred percent where I'm supposed to give over here, right? It just mm-hmm. kind of keeps pulling you back into that. So. You got to let go, yeah, go. of that past to reach for this new thing. Yeah, it's really life giving. Because if you don't, your test won't become the testimony. Mm-mm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. good. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Is there anything as you look at your life through a rearview mirror? And you look ahead, what do you think is the single most gratifying, peaceful, hopeful thought that you hang on to? I know that more storms are coming, right? I Mm. think that you're either coming out of a storm, going into a storm, or one is coming. There's just always something about that. But there's a story in the Bible, Revelation 12, where it talks about 
the woman fled into the wilderness, and in the wilderness there was a place prepared for her where she was to be nourished. And so just this whole idea, Psalm eighty-one sixteen, with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you, right? So this whole idea that the sweet stuff comes from the hard stuff, I think having walked through what I've walked through and going into what's next, I have a, a different perspective on how I handle difficulty and how I handle the hard. I think before the chaos floored me, it it took me out. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, one of the things that I always say is God is not moved off his throne the way that we are thrown by these moves, right? And just this whole idea that there is a way that it works out. There is a preparation that takes place. There is a way to have peace in the middle of the storm and in that crisis time. And so I know that more of those are coming, but I feel like there's a different perspective in the way I walk through that and in the letting go. Because one of the things very specifically that I learned was that my rescue, I'm a big rescuer, I'm a big fixer, right? That goes along with our control stuff. My rescue looks like enabling but God's rescue looks like salvation. And so when I can let go the things that I'm trying to fix and rescue and trust that there's going to be a way out of that, then there's there's more peace. And there's something about the heart and soul of a woman and the very constitution of, the, of a woman that I think she's uniquely equipped to bring that kind of hope to a man to her children, to her parents, to her family, to her community, to her sphere of influence. Thank you, Chris. That was amazing. Thank you. Yes, thank you. All right, everyone. If you haven't registered for our day of rest in Raleigh, North Carolina on June 10th through 11th, don't miss out because we only have a few weeks left. For updates about rest and this podcast, please visit our Instagram or Facebook, The Place of Rest. If you'd like more information about Virginia or to support and join the cause of rest, please go to virginiadixon.com forward slash collaborate or call 949-289-5935. Thank you for listening to Rest with Virginia Dixon. We'll see you next week. Mm